Welcome to That Anxiety Guy, episode 12. Why is everything a panic trigger? Hey guys, Drew here, thatanxietyguy.com. As always, thanks for stopping by to listen. I really appreciate it. Today we're going to talk about how we get into a state where just about anything on the face of the planet can be a panic trigger. This is a, something that I hear all the time. It's a very common complaint for people who are dealing with things like panic disorder and agoraphobia, especially when they get further down and it's been a long time and they're further down in the disorder and they find that the list of panic triggers and anxiety triggers is growing on an almost daily basis. And it becomes especially disheartening when it leads to a feeling that there's absolutely no control over the anxiety process. They feel completely powerless. And it, sometimes it's even worse when they feel like they're starting to make some progress. You know, you've been working hard. You're feeling good. You're actually getting out and about. Uh, and I hear many times, you know, I've had such a great few days. And then suddenly out of the blue, bam, I had a panic attack. And I feel like it's a huge setback and I'm never going to get better and this is never going to end. And I totally understand how disheartening it can be. It can be very emotionally draining. Uh, but understanding the process of how we get there, how we get into that state where we're on a hair trigger all the time, understanding the process uh, is a good first step in starting to reverse it and dealing with it. So I have to start with the foundation of the whole thing. And you guys are probably tired of hearing me talk about this, but it, it all kind of goes back to this. It all starts with being afraid of your panic and anxiety and, and afraid of your symptoms. So when we fear our symptoms, when we fear how we feel, when we fear those thoughts that, that generate anxiety, we worry about when they're going to next appear. And our mental focus turns almost entirely inward because we're always worried at any given time at how we feel. How am I feeling right now? How about now? How about now? We're worried about how we feel physically and what's going on in our, in our brains we worry about that all the time. And we also begin to worry about how we're going to feel not only right now, but how we're going to feel in the future. And that might be a minute from now, or an hour from now, or six months from now, we become really consumed with how we feel. And that's an unusual circumstance, because for so called normal people who aren't dealing with anxiety disorders, you know, every once in a while, we all focus inward, and we get wrapped up in our own stuff. But for people in that so called normal state, your focus is really mixed. Sometimes you're thinking inwardly and focused inwardly on your body or your mind, but often you're focused outwardly on the people around you and events and music and whatever's going on around you in the world. So your focus isn't normally 24-7 inward, but in our situation, often it is. And that's usually the first step, and that's extremely common. We all get to that point, uh, and this is kind of step one in that. When we're consumed all the time with how we feel, and we're worried about how we're going to feel down the road, that's a sure sign that your focus is inward almost all the time. So after a while, that inward focus really starts to become extreme, and we enter a state of what's called hypervigilance. And in hypervigilance, you are just constantly actively scanning your body and your mind to find those early warning signs of danger. Right. So we know that we are afraid of our symptoms. We don't want them to come. We don't want to have a panic attack. That seems like the worst possible thing that can happen. So we're constantly scanning for the early warning signs. Do I feel panic? Do I feel any anxiety? How am I feeling now? How am I feeling now? Is there anything going on in my body right now that I can interpret as impending anxiety or panic? We also tend to scan our own thoughts. We get stuck in our own heads, right? Because 
often our thoughts can trigger those things as well. So we literally get into the situation where if we are awake, we are constantly scanning our bodies and our minds for the early warning signs of dangers. And the reason why we do that is we feel that we need to be alert and ready for the next attack so that we can be ready to go into our safety rituals and our safety behaviors, the things that we somehow think will save us from our symptoms and keep us safe from panic. So we're scanning constantly. That's called hypervigilance. So when you become hypervigilant, you then become, you know, kind of uh, the best way to describe it is hypersensitive. So I'm going to use the analogy of a world-class athlete, say an athlete that dominates their sport. We'll talk about it, say American football. Uh, you hear that all the time. Wow, he had an amazing game today. He was really great. He was really in the zone, quote unquote, the zone. And when we talk about it, a world-class athlete being in the zone, we're essentially saying that he or she was laser focused on what was going on on the field of play they were able to react more quickly to the game conditions than all of their opponents they were able to make the right decisions that needed to be made quicker than anyone else and then they were able to execute on those decisions better than anyone else that's being in the zone so just being hypersensitive tuned into the game conditions and reacting accordingly to guarantee some positive outcome well, we kind of go in the same mode. We get into the anxiety zone when we're hypersensitive. The problem is this puts us on alert all the time. We are ready to go into battle. We're going to put our little safety behaviors and rituals into play. I need to know that I have my husband or wife with me. I have my bottle of water, my mints. I have my music or my rubber band on my, my wrist or whatever it is that you do that you think somehow keeps you safe or, or keeps the worst from possibly happening we're ready to go at any given moment. So we're, we're prepared, we're ready for battle. Now, as any war veteran, someone who has seen active combat duty will tell you, being constantly prepared for battle, being in the zone 24-7 when the zone is, you know, what we interpret as sort of life and death, is exhausting and it's draining and it can have negative impacts on our bodies and our ability to reason and on our emotional stability. So this kind of leads me to... Stage number four, when we get into that point where that constant scanning and constantly being on alert and in the zone and ready to react can really begin to erode. I, I like to call it, 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 we wind up in a state of having emotional bad aim, right? So when we are stimulated in one way or the other, our brain is able to interpret that stimulus and say, well, now I should be angry. Now I should be sad. Now I should be happy. Now I should be excited, whatever it happens to be. Well, when we are in a compromised state and our ability to reason and our ability to process those stimulus is, is compromised because of this, this exhausting routine that we're stuck in, we develop what I call emotional bad aim. And when we get into that state, we lose our ability to effectively manage stress. So we are always prepared for fear. We're worried about fear. We dread the fear. We wait for it. And we effectively train ourselves to have bad emotional aim because we're ready to react at all times to fear and not to anything else. So every stressor results in a fear response. If you had a fight with your spouse, you can panic. Uh, if you got the wrong order, you're out to dinner, and instead of bringing you a Caesar salad, they, gave, they brought you the house salad. Bam, panic. Uh, the woman at the grocery store brings in the wrong price for milk on the cash register. Bam, panic. Any stressor can become panic because whereas usually only dangerous situations will trigger the fight or flight response in our bodies, when you are inwardly focused, hypervigilant and hypersensitive state worried about fear, any situation can trigger it because we're ready to go into fear mode all the time. So everything triggers the fear mode. And really, 
it's not even just stress. So when you're on a hair trigger, it's really anything can start to trigger panic, including good things. So when I say emotional bad aim, I'm, I'm including even good emotions. So if you got a promotion at work, many people would find that very exciting. It can trigger panic. Uh, if you win the lottery, bam, panic. Uh, if you're at a your son or daughter's birthday party and they're having a great time and it's a happy occasion, bam, panic. So just about any, and I'll throw another one at, which is very common and maybe too much information, but a lot of people talk about this awkwardly. Being intimate with your partner, panic, right? Because that's that's a good experience. It's a positive experience. It's it should be pleasurable both emotionally and, and mentally and spiritually, but that stimulus can trigger panic as well. So that's that that emotional bad aim that I'm talking about. And aside from just stressor events and, and emotional type things, even just physical things become panic triggers. Virtually any stimulus will do it. A change in temperature, the variation in lighting, if a cloud passes over the sun, that was a huge thing for me. Uh, I had a very difficult time being in the car and driving by myself for a long time. And if I was out in the car and driving and on a beautiful sunny day and a nice white fluffy cloud went past the sun, you know, the light would change for uh, 10 seconds or 20 seconds. Then everyone around me wouldn't even give it a second thought. They might not even notice it. For me, it was a panic trigger. It was crazy. Um, just a blast of cold air, a different smell. One thing that was a big one for me that I've heard many people talk about also is uh, the taste of food. So you take a bite of some food and you expect it to taste one way and it doesn't taste exactly that way. Like the bite of food doesn't taste quite right. Oftentimes that will trigger anxiety, sometimes for no known reason, but also because it can start to kick off those obsessive sort of irrational thoughts like, oh my goodness, this egg salad must be spoiled and I'm going to get terrible food poisoning. Or worse, and I know I've experienced this, oh my goodness, this egg salad has been poisoned and I'm going to die in an hour. So just about anything can become a trigger when we get into this state. And as you can see, there's actually a process. There are stages we go through to get to that, right? If you go back to the very first time you ever experienced panic or anxiety, you didn't have a giant long list of panic triggers at that point. That develops over time. As our focus gets stuck inward, we become, we're scanning all the time, we become hypersensitive, we're ready to react, and we just become compromised. And our nervous system loses the ability to really direct stress and, and external stimulus in the right direction, and just everything elicits the fear response. So we, we tend to lose our control over that. And that's when I was talking about that feeling of being out of control or powerless uh, and how that can be kind of disheartening. Now, when you're working to overcome panic disorder and agoraphobia, like the last thing you need to feel is that you can't control your anxiety in any way. Uh, and this often leads to things getting even worse because as the trigger list gets longer and longer, many people begin to just try to avoid them all. So, for instance, if you always enjoy drinking orange juice in the morning, but last week you drank orange juice and had a panic attack an hour later, you may stop drinking orange juice. Now, that seems like a small little thing, but it's indicative of the wrong way to approach this. So as, as my trigger list gets longer, I'm going to continue to try and re-engineer my life to avoid every one of the things on that list. I can't go to the supermarket. I can't drink orange juice. I can't go to a birthday party. I can't get on the phone because any one of those things may trigger me. Uh, and when you begin to start to always want to avoid the triggers and you anticipate that anything can become a trigger, your life gets smaller and smaller. And yes, that feeling of being powerless and being unable to improve your, your situation can really begin to set in. Now, here's the good news. You actually can improve the situation because you can control those triggers and you do have control over the anxiety, but the trick is to stop trying to control it.
All right, I'm going to let's go back, circle back again to stuff that I, I drone on and on about all the time and you may be tired of hearing. But the key, as always, is in learning not to fear your symptoms. When you are afraid of the anxiety and the panic, when you are fearful of the symptoms, and rather than learning not to fear them and rather than facing them, you would rather try and stop them from happening or try and run around them and avoid them somehow, you're, you're not going to make any progress. When you actually learn to accept the anxiety and the panic and, and accept that they are your symptoms are extremely uncomfortable but harmless, when you learn to relax into them rather than facing, bracing, or fighting, or fleeing, when you no longer fear them, then there's actually no reason to be on alert 24-7 anymore. Right? So when you are no longer afraid, you don't care whether you have panic symptoms or not because you don't fear them. When you don't fear them, what does it matter if they come around? So you actually begin to see that your list of triggers becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. And things that you were convinced were absolutely 100% bona fide anxiety triggers three weeks ago will no longer be on your trigger list. Now, this doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a process. You didn't become oversensitized and on a hair trigger overnight. And you're not going to get out of that situation overnight either. But it starts with learning not to fear your symptoms, learning to face them head on, adding in the relaxation, the, the coping techniques, the self-talk, the breathing, the meditation skills. When you face them and we learn through experience that, oh, my goodness, I actually faced it and let it happen and I didn't die and nothing bad happened. When you learn from experience that you don't have to fear the symptoms anymore, your trigger list will magically begin to get shorter and shorter again. And you'll discover like, holy cow, I actually do have control over this process. So what it comes down to, if I could boil it down to one little sentence, it's lose the fear, win the war. Right. So if you lose the fear, you win the war. I, I can't stress that enough. It really comes down to that. So, again, take a minute, kind of process some of this stuff. If you understand the sequence of events that led you to the place where you're on a hair trigger 24-7 and you think you have no control over it, if you understand how that happened and why it happened, you can begin to address it. Right. And that's that's the lesson for today or the takeaway for today is that no matter how bad you think it is, it's it's actually never hopeless. And it's probably not as bad as you think. Once you win those first couple of victories, you begin to make progress pretty rapidly. You'll be surprised at, at how easy that can start to seem. You'll wonder, geez, why didn't I do this long ago? All right. So I'm going to begin to wrap it up here. Um, we're hitting about the 15 minute mark, which is I like to try and keep them around there. As always, I'm going to send you over to my website, thatanxietyguide.com. Every podcast episode is posted. You can listen right there. There's space to comment on each one. You can also link over to my Facebook page, my Twitter, Google+, I'm on Tumblr. Um, thatanxiety.com thatanxietyguy.com slash YouTube will get you right to my YouTube channel if you'd like to subscribe there. Uh, above all, what I'm more interested in is questions, comments, feedback, angry rants, whatever it happens to be. Because when I get feedback, it actually helps. I can incorporate that into future episodes. If you have something you'd like me to cover, by all means, let me know. And again, use any means you want to. Use the website comments or hit me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it happens to be. It's all good. Feedback is all good no matter what it is. And of course, one more thing for people listening on iTunes. If you're enjoying the podcast and you th you're getting something out of it, you think others would too, take 60 seconds, give me a rating, four or five stars. Hopefully you think I warrant it. And then maybe take another few seconds and just write a quick review on iTunes because that actually really helps the podcast show up much higher in the search results for terms like 
anxiety, panic, and agoraphobia. It definitely helps spread the word. And I, I would appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to leave you guys here. I will see you in the next episode. And as I say every week, keep moving forward because every step forward is a good step forward, no matter how small it may be. You guys have an awesome day. Thank you.